Well, I also want to share a word of welcome uh, with you, those who are here at 930, uh, those at our cafe service, as well as those uh, who are in the well this morning, as well as the increased number of those who I assume are watching online today. Once you know that God loves you, even though you didn't want to get out on this uh, beautiful uh, Texas uh, morning that we're having, uh, if you are watching online, I just want to remind you, uh, you can also make your offering online. Just go to the website there, just click that link. Uh, uh, we appreciate everyone being a part of our uh, service uh, this morning. Uh, today we're going to be wrapping up this series uh, that we've been in the last four weeks, Rooted, looking at where we are rooted uh, as a family of faith. But before we begin, I want to say just a word about where we're going next. Uh, we will begin uh, next the season of Lent, a sacred season that we share each and every year uh, in which we intentionally walk with Jesus towards the cross. Uh, that begins for us, the first step of that journey is on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, and at 7 p.m. here in our sanctuary, we'll be having our Ash Wednesday service. If you've never come to Ash Wednesday, you don't know what that's about. Uh, on Ash Wednesday, we place ashes on our foreheads in the sign of a cross, and what that symbolizes for us is our faults, our failures, and the forgiveness of God that covers all of those things made available to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, it's one of the few moments uh, throughout the year where we have a service where we invite our entire church family to be, be together. Whatever service uh, you, you may attend on the weekend, uh, all, are, all come together for Ash Wednesday. That's part of what makes it special. Uh, I want to especially encourage those uh, young families uh, with young kids. I know 7 p.m. May, may mean you're out a little bit later uh, on a school night, uh, but it's an important moment in the life of the church. It's a, it's, it's a great moment to, to share with your family together. And so uh, I hope you'll be with us Wednesday night as we begin. Uh, and then over the course of the next six weeks, uh, we're going to be sharing a series called Trip of a Lifetime. We're going to be traveling together. Uh, I'll be serving as your tour guide as we uh, visit the places where Jesus lived out his days. Uh, we'll visit those uh, uh, specific places that correspond to some of the most significant moments in the life of Jesus. And so I hope you'll be with, be with us starting next Sunday uh, as we share that series as we move towards the cross and the celebration of Easter uh, that will come at the end of the season of Lent. These last four weeks we've looked at four aspects of the 18th century movement that gave birth to Methodism, uh, looking at John Wesley and his work as the leader of that, that movement. And what I want to do as we wrap up this series today is I want to look at a particular period in the life of Wesley. I'm going to share with you some things that you've already heard before that, that occurred in that specific period of his life. And the reason I want to look at, at, at this, this portion of, of Wesley's life is because within uh, these few years were moments that forever changed Wesley's life. And, and what I want to suggest to you is had they not occurred, Methodism would have never come to fruition. And so I want to begin with you in December 1735 when John Wesley boarded a ship from England to come to the New World as he prepared to be a priest in a parish in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, he survived uh, uh, an incredible storm in, in that crossing, and in February of 1736, he arrived in Georgia, began working as a priest uh, in that particular area. And in the first week of the series, all I told you about Georgia was it didn't go well. It was a disaster. Uh, and today I want to tell you a little bit more about why it didn't go so well. <laughs> as soon as Wesley arrived, one of the first things that occurred is that he fell in love. 
He fell in love with a woman named Sophia Hopke. And while we're not really clear why the relationship didn't work out, uh, we know it didn't. There's, there's various reasons that the historians speculate as to why the relationship uh, didn't, didn't go the way that, that John wanted it to. Some say uh, that, that for Wesley, he was conflicted. He was an Anglican priest. Uh, they, they were allowed to marry at the time, but, but Wesley really felt a calling to live his life as a single and celibate priest, giving all of his life to the, to the ministry that God had called him to, and yet... There were these emotions that he felt about Sophia. So, so, so maybe that's why the relationship didn't work. But other historians simply say, Sophia didn't like John. She, she just didn't return his affection. Uh, what we know for sure is that Sophia ended up marrying someone else. A man by the name of William Wil- Williamson. And after the wedding, uh, on a particular Sunday, Wesley made what we might describe as a very poor decision. Uh, he made the decision to refuse to serve Sophia communion. Oh, yeah, that's right. So uh, at that particular time, the, an Anglican priest had the authority to do this, but, but the, the priest had to have a reason for that. And Wesley didn't really have a reason for his behavior. And so he was very quickly accused of slandering the new Mrs. Williamson. It erupted a firestorm within the parish. Eventually, legal proceedings began. And rather than face the controversy, in December of 1737, Wesley decided to get on a ship and go home. (laughs) After only 21 months uh, of ministry there in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, He returned at the age of 34, a broken man. Uh, a man that as he looked at all that he had done in his life up until that point, he, and all that he wanted his life to be, he could see just the mess he had made, the failure that he felt like he had become. And, and it's not a stretch for us to imagine that in his heartbreak, heartbreak and despair, Wesley would have assumed that a failure is all he would have ever been. Five months later, he got an invitation from a friend. Uh, to attend a, a society gathering. It's what we would call a Bible study that was meeting on Aldersgate Street. And we, we don't know exactly why the friend offered that invitation, but again, uh, we, we can imagine that this friend knew what Weston was going through. He knew the despair that, that he was in, perhaps the depression that he had found himself in. Uh, Wesley's confidence in in himself, his passion for ministry, even his faith in God had, had been dealt a severe blow. And reluctantly... Wesley agreed to go to this gathering. And that evening, he wrote in his journal about the experience that he had there on Aldersgate Street. He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did, I did trust Christ, Christ alone, for my salvation. He was a month shy of his 35th birthday. And he'd been serving as a priest for 14 years And yet for the rest of his life, Wesley would describe that night, May 28, 1738, as the night of his conversion. The day when faith became real to him in a way that it never had been before. And if you look at the writings and the sermons that Wesley shared before Aldersgate and and what he shared after his Aldersgate experience, you see the transformation that happened in Wesley. And so much of what we have looked at over the course of these last four weeks was born out of that change that he experienced in his life. 
Six years later, Wesley wrote uh, what is now referred to as 12 rules for preachers, and one of them is this. Wesley said, you have nothing else, nothing to do but to save souls, and therefore spend and be spent in this work. And part of the reason today I want us to look at this particular period in the life of Wesley from December 1735 to May 28, 1738 is I want us to imagine and and to, and to, to recognize that every single experience, every single moment of those years was critical for what happened in his life. And as we think about who we are today and why we are here today, I want you to also consider that Wesley could have easily given up. He could have easily found himself simply caught in despair, unable to move forward. He could have said no to the invitation that he received that night from a friend. He could have assumed that what his life had been before is what his life would be in the future. He could have assumed that the failure of the past would be the failure of the future. He could have thrown in the towel and his name could have been easily forgotten and the movement that was Methodism might have never been born except for the decision that he made to keep going, to not give up, fight through the despair and the heartbreak and, and even the, 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 the feeling that everything that had happened before was just an utter disaster. And because of what happened that night, everything that happened in the next 52 years of his life was forever changed and Methodism was born. It reminds me of something that that I've heard many times before from the most significant mentor in my life that in the Christian life, the only way to fail is to quit. And I believe that's true for my life. I believe that's true for your life. I believe it's true for the life of a church. I believe that more strongly today than I did many years ago. Because over the course of my life, maybe you've experienced this as well. There's many, many times, many opportunities where we feel ourselves in a moment of despair, in a moment uh, of frustration when the kingdom we are working for is simply coming to fruition more slowly than we would like. Or we may find ourselves thinking, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I want to throw in the towel. Maybe this is just too hard. But the only way to fail is to quit. The only way that we might fail is to lose focus on this this singular idea. You have nothing else to do but to save souls and therefore spend and be spent in this particular work. Don't quit. Uh, Several weeks ago, I was reading, uh, uh, that morning I read Genesis 12 through Genesis chapter 15. And in Genesis 12, God comes to a man named Abram. He'll later be renamed Abraham. That's how many of us uh, uh, relate to him, how we remember him. But uh, when, when he's introduced to us in, in the Genesis narrative, his name is Abram. And God comes to him and he gives him these words of instruction. He says, go from your country, leave your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make your name great. I will bless you. And in you, all peoples of the world will be blessed. And in verse 4 of chapter 12, it simply says this, so Abram went as the Lord had directed him. 
Abram leaves his country, he leaves his father's house, and he comes to the land of God's promise, the land that will come to be known as Israel, the Holy Land. And and he finds himself just outside the village of Bethel, and there outside Bethel, Uh, According to chapter 12, uh, Abram builds an altar to the Lord, and and the text simply says, he called on the name of the Lord. But what Abram and his wife Sarah very quickly find is that life in this new land is a little bit harder than they thought it was going to be, because there's a famine in the land. And so Abram and Sarah make the journey from the land of God's promise to Egypt, in order to find the food they need to, to, to sustain their life. And the faith that we see in Genesis 12, uh, 4, the, the faith of Abraham to simply go where God would lead him to go. As, as Abram comes into Egypt, we see that faith replaced by fear. And what his worry is, is, is that the Egyptians will notice the beauty of his wife Sarah and kill him so that they may take her for their own. And so Abram's brilliant plan, a poor choice, sort of like Wesley's choice, was that he was going to present himself, and he invited Sarah to join him in this, to present uh, himself and his wife as brother and sister in order to save his own life and, and, and make it there in Egypt. But the lie is eventually found out, uh, not before a, uh, Sarah ends up in the house of Pharaoh, by the way. Pharaoh's very upset at this deception, and rather than punish Abram and Sarah, he simply sends them away, and they return to the land of God's promise. And where Abram and Sarah specifically come is to that same place just outside Bethel, where according to Genesis 13, Abram had previously built an altar. He returns to that place, and there again he calls on the name of the Lord. And at the end of chapter 13, we see God doing what God will continue to do in the life of Abram. He reminds him of the covenant that he has made with him. He reminds him of the promises that he has made. God says again to Abram, I have not forgotten the promises that I have shared with you. And your offspring, those who come from your line, will be as numerous as the grains of sand. And then in verse 17, God says this. He says, go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. And maybe this has happened for you before when you've read a particular piece of, uh, of Scripture over and over again. You, you come back uh, to, to a portion of the gospel or maybe something you've read earlier in Genesis, and there's just something that jumps out at you that you hadn't really noticed before. A particular verse that you, that you think, well, that means something different for me today than it did in my earlier readings. And I, I came upon this and I thought, I, I don't even remember reading this before. This is one of those verses that I just uh, glanced by really quickly and I never really uh, captured my attention. But that morning, I just, this, this just struck me that the way that God affirms the promise is not only in words, but God invites Abraham to see. I want you to walk around. I simply want you to explore and to see all that I have given to you. And all that your ancestors will, uh, will inherit as a part of the promises that I have made for you. I want you to walk out 
and simply look around and bask in the beauty of the land that I am giving to you. Hear the words of affirmation, but also go and just look around. Walk and see everything that I have given to you. And I'll just read you a portion of what I wrote in my journal that morning. An application simply for myself was this, return to your altar, David. Do not forget what God has done in your life. Do not forget that God has brought you to this place. Do not forget the promises that God has made and the land that God has given to you. Instead, today, you need to walk it. You need to let your eyes see it. You need to let your heart once again embrace it. And so uh, that morning, here's what I did. I decided to simply do that, to walk the land. I parked uh, in the back part of our parking lot at the intersection of Walnut Creek, the street, and Walnut Creek, the creek. (laughs) And I just began to walk the perimeter of the land that God has given to us for the sake of our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ who love God, love others, and serve the world. And I decided that as I walked, I wanted to take these pictures to, uh, to capture the various ways that people see and engage with our church uh, as they find themselves at the corner of Walnut Creek and Pleasant Ridge. I crossed Pleasant Ridge to the, uh, to the additional acreage that we acquired several years ago where this summer we hope to be adding parking spaces for uh, future growth and for those who have not yet found a home here. And I spent that time walking the perimeter of the land that God has given to us, simply praying for us, for the life that we share, thinking about 134 years of ministry. The idea that this church was founded before the founding of the city in which it's located. And that we as a people of faith, uh, as the First Methodist family, we're actually in the third century of ministry (laughs) that we have shared in in this community. And I prayed about the future that I believe God has called us to pursue. And the part that we have been called to play in the story of this great faith family, the, 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 the past, the, the faithfulness of those who have come before us, and the challenges that God has placed in our future. I prayed that God would lead us, that God would guide us, that, that we would maintain that focus, the simple idea that you have nothing to do but to save souls, and that we therefore should be spent, we should spend our lives in this work. We have, over the course of this series, uh, been praying a prayer that that comes from a particular passage of Scripture. It's Ephesians 5.14, and I want to show it to you here uh, on the screen. It simply says, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And I want to read that to you first, just in case anybody needed that first line, wake up, sleeper. And here's what I want to invite us to do as we conclude this series today. As we finish up this focus on our heritage, looking at the roots of our faith, reminding us who we are and therefore where we must go as a people of faith. I want to invite us to share again and to claim for ourselves this prayer. God, wake us up. 
God, stir us from our slumber. God, lead us into the future. God, give us the courage to never give up, never quit on the work that you have called us to do, the work of saving souls, of sharing faith, of lifting high the cross, of being faithful to Jesus and what he's called us to do in the world that God has created. So as we conclude today here uh, in the sanctuary, in our chapel, upstairs, if you're watching online, I want all of us to do something together. I want to invite you first to stand. And I want to invite you to do something that I don't often do, but I learned this from my good friend Doug Peak. Uh, that sometimes you just got to instruct people on what to do, uh, sometimes uh, doing something that may be uncomfortable uh, for us. I want to invite you to simply raise your hand. And if it's hard to do, I just I want you to know uh, I'm actually in physical therapy for my, my rotator cuff, so I'm under medical advice to not do this, okay? So we're raising our hands together. And uh, what I want you to do with that hand is I want you to place it on the shoulder of the person next to you. And if you're not next to somebody, you obviously have to go find somebody. <laughs> if you're at home alone, I don't know what to do. Just, just. <laughs> but we're going to pray together and I'm going to lead you in prayer. We're going to have a time of prayer together. Uh, so I want to invite you to bow your heads. Uh, and as you do, I want to encourage you just first to, to pray for the person who is next to you. Pray that God would strengthen them in whatever they are facing in their life. Pray that God would give them the courage to not give up, to never quit. In your own time of prayer, I want to invite you, whatever, whatever this looks like for you, I want to invite you to return to your altar. And just to take a moment to remember that all has got, that God has done in your life. Those moments that have forever changed you. Everything that has happened since is different because of what happened in that experience in your life. And then I want to invite you to pray for your church. Pray for all of us together. Pray that God would bless us with the same bravery of those who have come before us. Today, Lord, we give you thanks that those who have come before us did not give up. We thank you, Lord, that, that fear and despair and heartbreak did not win the day. And instead, grace and love and restoration came. A new day, a new life was born. 
And though, Lord, they may have never known it, generations were forever changed. Lord, we are overwhelmed by the idea that we might have that same capacity in our own life, but we know that's true. And I pray, Lord, today that we would feel the weight of that. The weight of all that you might do. And all that your spirit might bring. And as a result, Lord, of our determination to simply stay focused on you and the work you've called us to do. We commit today, Lord, our our lives saying we will not give up on you and we will not give up on grace and the power of grace in our lives and in the lives of others to bring new life into our lives and into your world. May our understanding of our story shape who we are. And in knowing who we are, Lord, may we know where to go, what you've called us to do. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.